I was sitting quietly in my house about a week and a half ago when I heard a strange and sudden sound. And I had no idea what it was. It was a loud sound. I didn't think it had come from within the house, but it was loud enough that I thought it couldn't have been terribly far away. It was a, a sudden sound, a sharp sound, not quite as sharp as maybe a, a gunshot or a firework exploding, but it was a sound that had some, some pop to it. And I was thoroughly confused by what that sound might have been. And it was only later when I learned that there were four police cars on the block outside of my house and that they were arresting a drunk driver that I recognized what had happened. This driver had crashed into a parked car at apparently a relatively high speed and that made that loud and sudden sound that had so confused me. Now, needless to say, once I realized everything that had happened, I was certainly thankful that, as far as I could tell, no one else was injured in this incident. I was glad that you know, none of my immediate family or the neighbors that I knew had been in the path of this oncoming car. But the thankfulness for a lack of, of additional damage or, or harm to bodies that didn't have anything to do with this lady's decisions or her actions. No, her actions were absolutely reckless. They put people in danger to say nothing of her own self. And wouldn't you know it, but in that relatively brief time between when this event happened and hear me preaching with you today, I've run across two additional stories that reminded me of this incident, two news stories that detailed accidents that had happened. One involved a car just up here on Grant Road that was apparently driving at about 100 miles per hour. Needless to say, that's way too fast for Grant. The other, unfortunately, is probably the most tragic of all because this one involved a pedestrian in a crosswalk who was struck and killed by a drunk driver. Drinking too much and then getting in a car and driving away is reckless behavior. It's behavior that doesn't even begin to take into account all the harm and all the all, all the issues that can come into play when you do something like that. All the damage that it can cause to people and to lives. And so when I think of reckless behavior, it's one of the first things that comes to mind. The story of the noise is my story of recklessness. But I don't really think about recklessness and combine that with patience. 
In fact, I'm not even sure that until I was preparing for this sermon and preparing for this service today that I've ever actually run across the phrase reckless patience. The, the two just don't seem to fit very well together. When I think of patience, I think, and maybe you do too, of the old adage that patience is a virtue. And it is. It's something that God directs us to do. He wants us to reflect in our lives the patience that he has for us by being patient toward others. Patience is a good thing. Patience rarely would appear to be something reckless. But Jesus tells a story that invites us to think about patience that could be considered reckless. Jesus tells this story right on the heels of another story. Jesus is telling parables, and he goes from one parable right into the next. If you were here last week, you heard Jesus telling a, a parable about two sons and the two sons had different reactions to the, the job that their father had asked them to do. One said, okay, I'm going to do it. And then he sat on the couch and didn't do the job. And the other son said, no, I'm not going to do what you're asking me to do, Dad. But then he changed his mind and he went and did it. And the people to whom Jesus were speaking heard Jesus' warning that he was talking about a lack of repentance. He was talking about how they had failed to listen to John the Baptist, they had failed to take into account his call for repentance. They had failed to, to do what God was calling them to do and to repent and believe. And then Jesus had another story to tell. Now, like many parables, this story starts out in a pretty ordinary way. There was a man who owned a parcel of land, and he decided that on that land was going to be a vineyard. And so he did all the things that were necessary to make this vineyard come to fruition. He planted vines, and he put up a wall and a fence. He built up a watchtower. He dug out a wine press. He had everything in place that this vineyard would produce grapes, and some of those grapes could be uh, worked into wine, and everything was set that he could receive an income off of this land. But it wasn't his plan to work the land directly. He hired some tenant farmers. He, he leased out his land to them. He made an agreement with them, and the agreement went something like this. You tend the land. When harvest comes, you give me some of what the land produces, and then I'll be paid back for my investment in this. I'll make something from my efforts. I'll make something from my investments. It gets a little less ordinary after that. So far, the people would have been familiar with vineyards. And while it maybe wasn't the usual uh, method of, of dealing with a vineyard, I don't think tenant farming was an unusual thing, and the people would have had some familiarity with that. But when the harvest time came, here's Jesus' story, the fruit didn't get sent to the owner. He sent his servants to go pick up what he was owed. And what happened to those servants? They were captured. They were beaten. They were stoned. They were even killed. 
See, there's a reason that the headings in our Bibles or the way we refer to this parable is often termed the parable of the wicked tenants. We're talking about wickedness. We're talking about gruesome behavior. Killing these servants, and it didn't even stop there because the landowner sent even more servants, and they did to those servants exactly what they had done to the first. And then it still gets worse. Because then the owner makes the decision that you and I would probably understand calling it reckless. And he sends his own son. And when his son gets to the vineyard, the tenant farmers take the son and they throw him out of the vineyard and they kill him there. A response that surprises nobody except for that landowner. Now, suppose you were one of the Jewish leaders who was standing there near Jesus that day as he was telling the series of parables, and he started talking about this vineyard. Do you think that maybe what we heard from Isaiah chapter 5, what God had previously said about a vineyard might come into your mind? I think it would. And, and even some of the description between Jesus' vineyard and the one that was described by Isaiah, I, they sound very similar. And so maybe these leaders of the Jews right away kind of got that Jesus is telling us something about the people of Israel. He's telling us something about God's people who had, he, he had preserved through the Old Testament, and they were some of those people in Jesus' day. But what was he saying? And what was he telling them? They, they realized, they recognized Jesus was telling another parable about them. And he was suggesting that they were like those tenant farmers. He was telling, he was warning that they had been in a position to do something for God, to do the will that uh, what, what he had in mind for them, and that was to help his people produce fruits of repentance, remain faithful to him, show forth their fruits of faith, and they didn't do it. In fact, they did the exact opposite of that. They led people astray. They led people away from God, and so God sent prophets. And did the leaders listen to the prophets and repent and turn to... no. They killed the prophets. And God sent more prophets through centuries, and, and they did the same. And so you had this situation where, where God had been patient over centuries, sending his prophets to the leaders of his people who had refused to listen again and again and again, and they had gotten all the way to this point that Jesus was speaking to these leaders of his people, and they were still rebelling and still leading people away from God and away from his word. And as many prophets as God had sent, nothing had changed. So what does God do? He sends his son. And I don't think we want to call God reckless. 
that doesn't seem like it would be a wise idea for us. We're not suggesting that God is acting with complete disregard for anyone's health or safety because God sent his son because he knew this is what the people needed. It would be reckless for any human father to send a human son into a situation like the one God was sending his son into, but God was sending it for the reason of his amazing love and grace. He was sending his son, Jesus, because that's exactly what those people needed. They needed a Savior. They needed a sacrifice. They needed a perfect life and an innocent death to replace and to repair their lives, to make it so that they did not need to ever die. Now, no parable can ever completely capture or really even get close to capturing God's amazing grace for us. But this story of what we might call reckless patience at least captures our attention. It points our attention in the right direction to think about God and his amazing love. One commentator had some words to say about this parable that caught my attention. I'm going to read them for you. There is no imagery, he writes, within the experience of men that can picture the amazing grace and patience of God. The hearers, the people who heard Jesus' parable, might well exclaim, why, we never heard of an owner doing such a thing, not stopping until his own son was killed. Of course they had not. But this is the very point Jesus wants to make. With this unheard of imagery, Jesus pictures the unheard of wickedness of these Jewish leaders who murdered not only the prophets sent for their salvation, but were now about to murder God's own son. But now what about you and me? What are we supposed to take from this parable? We're not Jewish leaders standing in front of Jesus listening to him speak these words. We're not those plotting against his life at the very moment he says these things. But we dare not think even for a moment that our wickedness is somehow less than theirs. It's not. From the time of the first sin on every human being born into this world in the natural way has been born in sin and wickedness. And that means a wickedness sent on, set on not doing God's will, but going completely against it, a wickedness that is perfectly in keeping with what is described, the horrors described in this parable. So what are we to take from this parable? What about God's grace? I'm not an exception to that sort of wickedness. You are not an exception to that sort of wickedness. Our sins sent Jesus to the cross just as certainly as those men's, their plotting did. 
our unwillingness to serve and to love God and to serve and to love others condemns us. And so it is only through Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross that our sins are removed, that we are restored to live a new life, a life that's different from those men or from the leaders of previous generations. Recall how Jesus concludes this story. He asks the people what they think. How is this landowner going to react to what those tenant farmers did? And they know the answer. There's no other answer possible. He's going to get rid of those tenant farmers. They're going to get exactly what their deeds deserve. And he's going to give that vineyard. He's going to lease it out to someone who's going to give the fruit that he is due when he's due it. And that's exactly what Scripture had foretold. We heard in the psalm how God had predicted regarding Jesus the stone the builders rejected. How Jesus was thrown out even by the leaders of God's people because he just didn't look the part. He didn't do what they expected him to do. They didn't do he didn't do what they wanted him to do. They tossed him aside because like a, like a builder building a building would toss aside a stone because he didn't think it would fit or work or look right. It was fit for nothing but the scrap heap. But God had different plans. And he took that stone and he made it the cornerstone. He made it the, the most precious stone, the most important part of the entire building, this building that God has been building, a, a building of people, His church, that includes you and it includes me, those people whom God has given the kingdom. And when God has given us the kingdom... That leads us to bear fruit, produce the fruit that he demands. Those who are a part of this building, people like you and me, are not better tenants on our own. No, we are tenants who have been changed by the grace and love, the amazing, call it reckless if you want, patience and mercy of God for us in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so now God asks us and he invites us to follow his example. He asks us to bear fruit in things like patience. He asks us to be patient with others just as God has been patient with us. How well does that go? Patience isn't in our nature. How long does it take us to get impatient with people who are doing something that we feel is wrong or is especially damaging to us? Not usually very long. We think that the Father in our story, in Jesus' story, is reckless because we can't even imagine acting in a way that even approaches that. And so this story of reckless patience reminds us that God is not just patient with Jewish leaders. He's patient with you and with me. How can I be patient with others when I remember God's amazing grace and love and patience 
for me. Patience so extreme that I could hardly fault someone else for calling it reckless. There are lots of things that we could consider reckless and maybe drunk driving and other ridiculous li- ridiculousness like that is pretty high on the list. Only rarely would we describe patience that way. But when Jesus tells us a story of reckless patience, we stand in awe of God's amazing grace and we thank God that He's made us part of His eternal kingdom. And in that kingdom, we can bear fruit for Him. Amen.